0: Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voysin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come from around the world to listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. Uh, I was just telling Hap, uh, who is we are going to be interviewing here in a second, but I've been doing this nine years, almost 600 interviews. And if it wouldn't be for you guys out there uh, continuing to encourage me to do this, Who knows, I might have given up a long time ago, but this is a lovely opportunity to share the word and let people know about some great books out there from some great authors. And today, joining us from uh, Berkeley is Hap Klopp, and Hap has written a book, he's written actually several books, but this particular book uh, he wrote is called Almost 12 Electric Months Chasing a Silicon Valley Dream. Good day to you, Hap. How are you? I'm great, great. Thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate you taking a a few minutes to speak with my listeners about your new book, and it is a fascinating book. And for those of you out there, I'm going to let my listeners know um, Hap just a little bit about you. He is the founder of the iconic brand, The North Face, with almost everybody knows, a Stanford grad, and a serial entrepreneur. Uh, Hap consults around the globe, lectures on topics of entrepreneurship, particularly entrepreneurship, and is found in Silicon Valley. He's the author of two previous books on business, including the acclaimed leadership book, Conquering the North Face, an adventure adventure in leadership. Hap holds an A.B., and MBA from Stanford, Founded North Face, where he served as the president and CEO for 20 years, he runs an international consulting firm called HK Consulting, with offices in the U.S. and Japan, and he's lectured at the business schools at Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon, University of San Francisco, and another and a number of other universities. He's also been profiled on national television in such publications as Business Week, Forbes, Wall Street Journal and Inc. Magazine. Well, he also has a co-author, and it's Brian Tarsi, and he's a journalist and co-founder of CapeCodWave.com, an online magazine featuring long-form journalism. He started Cape Cod Wave in May of 2013. You can find this book at all your best booksellers. You can find it on Amazon, obviously. Again, the book is called Almost... 12 Electric Months Chasing a Silicon Valley Dream. Well, Hap, you know, you mentioned in the book that Silicon Valley has an energy about it that feels like big things will happen all the time, but usually it doesn't, and that the community actually embraces failure. What is it about failure uh, that makes for a great teacher for people and entrepreneurs that have gone into business?
1: Well, there's so many things that are, are beneficial of it. I mean, most people talk about a failure as something they uh, worry about and they try to cover up. And, and uh, I, I frequently tell people that failures are the secret sauce of Silicon Valley, the way they embrace it. Uh, if you look at some of the great people uh, who've come through there, uh, Steve Jobs is a good example, but uh, uh, you could have uh, thousands of them. Jack Dorsey uh certainly is another example of somebody who failed in fact bill gates uh, started some company uh, before he started microsoft that uh, was called crafft data or something that that basically failed and and uh, the the concept of failing uh is was best described by probably thomas edison who said i've never failed i just found 10,000 ways something doesn't work and if you mm-hmm. have that attitude then you can quickly move forward and and what you get from failure uh, and, and from embracing it and understanding it is, first and foremost, it's a learning experience. And mm-hmm. and that is beneficial. In, in science, they use something which is called the scientific method, where basically you set up a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis, you reject the things that don't work, and you move on uh, with the things that do work. Uh, in business, for some reason, we've adapted this thing. Everything we work on should work. Well, the reality is that it doesn't work that way, uh, and not everything works out. Most of the business plans I see uh, are never adhered to as the company develops. There's pivots and points of, of shift. There's plans B, plans C that come up, uh, and that's because failure is inevitable. So if you can learn from it, move ahead, that's great. It also, frankly, adds an element of humility, uh, which is good, because nobody knows everything. And when you start off, and and many of the people, particularly when you look at it in Silicon Valley, have have, uh, advanced degrees, whether it's from a grade school, high school, or uh, things, uh, college, postgraduate, but they tend to think that they're the smartest people in the room, and they, they very well may be. But with that, oftentimes there isn't the humility that's required to be able to deal with people and create a growth that that, that comes from dealing with people and comes from dealing with with uh, setbacks that arise along the way. So, uh, you know, so my general feeling is that those two things alone, if you've got nothing else, would be highly beneficial. Uh, but if if you want to look beyond that, then I, I think that. Uh, examples which I talk about oftentimes is that you can improve your image with failure when I ran in the north face we actually invented a new tent with a new tent pole that never existed before and it actually broke uh, what we did is quickly embrace it we figured out a solution it had to do with a thing called stress corrosion cracking that nobody had ever seen before we went out immediately recalled everything offered to replace it and we've got so many notes of people saying this is fantastic. You know, most people talk about warranties when they sell a product, but then you can never actually uh, utilize it when you come along. And yours, you, you have a full warranty, and and you're backing it up. Some people said they wouldn't turn the polls back. They didn't want to lose a day of use of it. We said that's fine. Just we'll send out new ones. You don't have to return them. We didn't ask people to show us uh, the date of purchase or any of those things. And as a result of it, the the image of the company really increase and the other maybe the other last point that I would say is uh, failing eliminates the fear of failure Uh, many times people don't do something because they're afraid of failing But once you've gone in, you've tried it, it didn't work, you failed you know what the worst thing is that can happen and been there, done that and uh, you're able to go forward with a lot more freedom of action
0: well, I think you've given my listeners pretty good perspective on how failure can actually help their enterprises. And, you know, you most people say, or at least the business consultants, fail fast, fail forward, right? That was kind of the philosophy of, of Dick Martin as well, which we'll get into here in a minute. But, you know, you took on a, a big role here at right. Artica. You know, you were not only on the board, but you were the marketing director. Then you hired Sean as your sales guy, and you stated that you were, um, you know, you were heading up what was called a five-year startup. What did Artica make? Because so, for my listeners, they they really don't know yet. So we want to know, you know, what did Artica make, and how were these young entrepreneurs going to change the world with this green power source? that you well articulate in the book um and and really as the marketing director why did you decide to take on this young startup that was just struggling so much with finding funding and keeping funding and you know rounds and rounds and rounds of funding
1: well big question but the the thing that was appealing first of all was uh, they had a goal of producing very energy-efficient power sources, miniaturized, that could drive much of the devices that we have in the world right now, and energy is a big, a big challenge. Certainly, when you think about your phone, how you run out of battery power, when you think about the new cars coming up, everything was there. And so, they had ideas of creating products that were miniaturized that could be put into consumer products that would greatly add to the, uh, the life of the product while being a green product because most of the energy sources we have right now when they end up in landfill are very detrimental to society so we we looked at it and we had two initial products that we were focused on one was a lithium-ion battery product which could be arrayed in a variety of ways to be put into clothing where you would uh, basically run and charge Every device that you have from your jacket yourself, simultaneously, you could have heat on demand, temperature control. Now, that was one product we worked on. The second product, which was much more exotic, was the idea of developing a fuel cell that would be small enough to be able to go into consumer goods, and that would have even greater energy and and be even more green uh, than the long-lasting lithium-ion batteries, rechargeable lithium-ion batteries that existed there. So our idea was to replace all of the environmental destructive and very inefficient power sources that existed for consumer goods uh, with his company. The idea mm-hmm. of being able to revolutionize an industry to disrupt an industry is what drew me to it. Uh, I love disruption. Mm-hmm. I love the ideas of of change. I think that the, the society that we have right now really needs a lot of these things. We're moving headlong uh, into places we've never been before. Ninety-five percent mm-hmm. of all the patents ever issued have been issued in the last five years, and it's an exponential curve, and we're growing very dramatically but frankly many of the things that we are now insinuating into our lives are things that require power sources uh, that are not readily available
0: mm-hmm. so for that reason you thought this green power source and artica was was a company that would actually you know change the way that everybody Uh, at least worldwide, looks at their power source and where they get it from and how green it is. One of the things, though, that this company went through was just these what I would call huge cycles. I mean, as I was reading this book, I was just like uh, not amazed because, you know, like I do consulting as well, so I understand, you know, how things go. But the board hired this CFO by the name of Jim. and He was one of the first things uh, was that when he came in, He said, this company was almost bankrupt. Um, Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts when you learned this news from Jim? And at that time, I guess Dick Martin was there as well. And Dick and you, based on the way I read this book, had kind of opposing ways that you would run a company. Um, Mm -hmm. I I can almost sense by reading the book, uh, the way that I read into it, even though you didn't always outright come out and say it in the book. Um, that your management style and his management style were pretty conflicting. Um, So tell us a little bit about your thoughts when you, hey, I'm in this company, I'm on the board, I'm the marketing director, and Jim's telling me, "Uh uh-oh, no more money.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, dropping back or digressing just for a moment, one of the other things that really drew me to the company was it was staffed with perhaps the greatest group of geniuses that I'd ever seen. We had graduates from Stanford University. We had graduates from uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon the Naval Academy, we had two astronauts that were inside the company. This was legitimately a group of people who could change the world. So it wasn't just an idea of a product. Uh, there was uh, individuals there that could carry out things, that could produce things that had never happened before. And so the the appeal was uh, the right people going in the right direction was, was the way to go. Now, as you point out, Uh, there was a culture clash that existed in the company, and and one of the points that I would hope readers would get from the book, there's kind of five basically uh, points, I think, that made the company fail while being interesting, but you could learn on OPM other people's money, uh, other people's mistakes. Uh, You don't have to repeat the ones that we did, but but that first point was you cannot have two cultures that exist inside a company. The, on the surface, the culture clash was sort of between sales and engineering. The salespeople wanted more and more of an individual product, and the engineering people, the R&D people, never wanted to make two of the same product. And That that was sort of the surface clash. But behind that, the bigger clash was really between my style of business management and Dick Martin's style. Dick was a graduate of the Naval Academy and spent his whole life in the military and, I've been a serial entrepreneur. I've been involved in in companies that are constantly changing. One is a very hierarchical structure. Uh, People are segmented from it, nobody nobody challenges ideas, and you don't worry about where money comes from uh, because it's always going to come from the government or projects or something. You don't even have to think about it. Whereas in the entrepreneurial world that I've lived in, you have to treat every nickel like it's a manhole cover. you got to watch how you use it. you got to watch where it's coming from. You have to scrap and, and get that. And so uh, when the CFO alerted us to the financials and the financials were very poor they frankly were being done by a secretary in the company before uh jim came in there when he announced that we were out of cash it didn't surprise me because we were spending not against budgets but we were spending based on, on needs That people had and these were perceived needs that people had and I actually had to set up uh, tracking systems for following all of the marketing and sales expenditures because I always operated that way but we couldn't get them out of the company and uh, it kind of goes to the the second aspect of what you kind of learn from this and and that is if if you don't have a plan and you can't measure against it uh, then what you have is a plan to fail and uh, mm-hmm. as we talk about in the book uh the, the guy from the government had no desire for strategic planning uh, as a result of the fact that he didn't do that in his previous life where everywhere I'd been in business and entrepreneurial world and where I got my MBA, the having a strategic plan and, and uh, steps along the way where you measure milestones, if you will, uh, was absolutely essential. And so we were going back and forth on this and Vic's idea was as I said, hierarchical, uh structured, don't worry about money, it always comes from somebody else. And uh, we ended up $2 million in the hole. We owed $2 million more than we had in the company when the CFO had talked to me about it.
0: Well, you know, uh, interestingly, you know, you look at those philosophical styles and differences between uh, bureaucratic style versus your very startup entrepreneurial by the bootstraps, which is the kind of guy you are. You can just tell that right away. Um you know, you guys were building these prototypes. Your salesman, Sean, was out there. You'd gotten some uh, some orders from uh, hardware, Mountain Hardware. Yeah. And, and you were getting the word out. And at that point, you guys were offered $2.4 million from FireLake. But you turned it down. Tobin right. decides to turn it, though, because he says it was too low of a valuation. And you say one thing you said that the guys were learning the cardinal rules, that it always takes twice as long and costs three times as much as anticipated. What happened when you kind of ran out of that money and Tobin and his partner decided they weren't going to take this $2.4 million from Fire Lake, which I think in the book almost seems like a critical turning point.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, we had a lot of turning points. In fact, we were sometimes spinning as a result of the way we were running, and hopefully the, the book conveys that. But it, it, it it's hard to raise money for entrepreneurial companies pre-revenue, and that's where the company was, mm-hmm. pre-revenue. We were just in the R&D mm-hmm. stage. It's much easier to raise money uh, when you have established sales and that was what my strategy was you know let's get some sales and get some earnings on the board and use the R&D that we have behind that uh, to be able to build a lasting product uh, cycle that would be great and unfortunately Uh, A lot of people didn't realize that it was difficult to raise money, and so we had a couple uh, inflection points, but the one you mentioned is one where everybody was looking around, and in Silicon Valley, lots of times you see just incredibly out-of-line valuations for a company, uh, and money is thrown into that. And uh, so it's on one end, you're starved for capital. On the other end, they're throwing way too much money at you at way too high a price. Neither one of those works very well. What you have to do is take it when you can get it, except the fact that you may not be getting the same valuation as an Instagram or something, but having capital for the long term is the right way to go. And I would say there's a bit of hubris, a bit of naivete uh, that existed, that you find with people doing their first time's entrepreneurship that there will always be mm-hmm. money there, it will always be at a higher price, you you look around at the people that you went to school with or the people who are running companies near you and you hear all of these fantastic stories and you just accept them as real and accept the fact that you're not going to have any challenge coming up with it and then, lo and behold, uh, you're hit with the fact that you can't get money. And, and and you can't get it at valuations you think the company is worth, because the metrics that most people are using in the marketplace, were somewhat sophisticated, are quite different than what uh, what you have in, in your own mind.
0: I have a quick question for you. It's a side question. It just came to mind. Yeah. I happened to see some guys come on Shark Tank. I don't know if it was Artica or not. They were doing heated jackets, and you know they were going to heat all this stuff with this energy source. Was that was that these guys?
1: No, it wasn't. It was people after that okay. time. Uh, when, when we did okay. it was in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Uh-huh. That's when the book is set. And we had some tremendous success. It wasn't only Mountain Hardware. We worked with uh, Sitka. We had uh, a huge uh, order with the Hugo Boss company, and and, and a variety of others. Uh, Spiders mm-hmm. was using it for ski clothing for people out there. So we had right. quite a bit of exposure. And then when we imploded, uh, a lot of people saw that there was a need for that. But uh, the, you know, we weren't the ones that were able to develop it. And so others came in trying to, to capitalize on that idea.
0: Yeah, and I remember remember them saying that they had patents pending on it as well. So it was, it was interesting. It was just a sidebar question. Now you wanted to build this brand and you wanted to build it quickly. But as we've talked about, the funding was taking forever. As a matter of fact, you had to go back to the SEC attorneys and redo the offering in round A and round B and and yep. you were trying to get the 5 million you got the 2.1 million you know mm-hmm. which was far under the amount you wanted what lessons are right. learned from the financing and fundraising in an organization and ultimately legend bailed you out they didn't yep. bail you out to the degree that you wanted to be bailed out but for my listeners you know hap you've been around this game a long time you've had a do a lot of funding inside North Face over the years. I don't know how many times you funded and refunded and, you know, who knows, you maybe even, you know, sold receivables at one point and factored things. You know, I know that in young startup companies, sometimes you do some desperate things to get going. What lessons can you, can you tell our listeners about this particular company, but more in general about funding?
1: Well, First of all, when you run out of money, you start making bad decisions. A specific case in this book, which highlights that, is that because we didn't have any money, we did not do the final engineering, the the engineering for uh, consumer use. We just did R&D engineering, and as a result of not doing it and having all sorts of external outside tests, we ended up having a product that had to be recalled which was very expensive. Only would have been about $30,000 more for tests, but we didn't have that money. So as I said, when you run out of money, you make bad decisions. But the the second thing, and, and you pointed out my old adage that it always takes twice as long and costs three times as much. You've got to plan for that. And so you have to follow the money and know exactly where it is, husband some money and set it aside so that when it takes longer, you aren't suddenly out of capital. You have to make trade-off decisions that can be very harmful for the company. If you don't know it until it happens, if you have the belief that somehow out of heaven money is going to come your way, uh, it doesn't, and then you have to compromise. You either compromise on your, your product or your go-to-market strategy, or you have to lay off people, uh, very good people who, who uh, come to you wanting to work for a great company for a wonderful idea and then suddenly you lay them off, you don't pay them any money. Uh, maybe they're working on a furlough or maybe they're working for no salary for a period of time and you don't fulfill your obligation to your employees as a result of that money. Now, mm-hmm. ultimately, every... Every small company that I've seen, every entrepreneurial company goes through cycles uh, where they don't have enough capital. And you have to be able to look at alternative ways to raise capital. Uh, having a financial strategy is essential. You can't just have a strategy for a product or you can't have a strategy to build a brand uh, which is not coupled with financial strategy. If you don't have that, you're going to end up uh, sub-optimizing the results of the company.
0: Very sound advice. No, very sound advice. You know, in April of 2010, uh, Dick Martin decides to call a meeting. You'd previously had a meeting with Facebook, and you were a bit, I could tell, pissed off that you had to cancel the meeting uh, to make sure you were at this meeting. Because Dick was basically going to tell the employees he'd run out of money and he couldn't do their paychecks. Now, there were some pretty interesting words in that room. Um, I think you even say in the book that one of the young employees said uh, to Dick, you old blankety-blankety-blank. You think that you're going to be able to do this. I just want my money. Um, tell us about that meeting because that had to be a pretty heated meeting in the boardroom with chairs against the wall and people uh, very, very heated. And yep. uh, what was the outcome?
1: Well. I mean the outcome was the company really fell apart as a result of that. I mean after a while uh the employees were being pushed to the max. As I mentioned in the book, in this specific case, many of the employees were promised pay that they didn't get. Uh they were they were offered uh a solution, we'll have it at the at the next payroll. It didn't happen all the time, so they were working longer and longer without any results and it was dawning on people at that time throughout the company that we were really living on a myth. And the myth was uh, the one that a lot of people believe happens in Silicon Valley, which is that there's gonna be overnight success. The reality is Mm -hmm. every overnight success takes years. But uh, the the CEO kept telling everybody, don't worry, we're going to have a bailout from this big consumer goods company in Silicon Valley, which I call Big Silicon, and we're going to have it within a few weeks, and we're going to be worth $50 to $100 million. And people have been told this repeatedly, and I pointed out in the book. And each time where we're running out of cash, don't worry, we're going to have Uh, big silicon come in and buy the company but there was no indication from the company other than the fact that they were interested in perhaps doing a joint venture of some sort uh, there was no indication that they had any desire to buy the product because the product that they were interested in the fuel cell was just in its nascent stages it wasn't developed at all and so Mm -hmm. after putting up with no no salary uh, some of the people, in fact, extended their own credit card to make purchases on behalf of the company, and then were not reimbursed for that money. Uh, was, so we we met and we were trying well, to and talk about.
0: And to, to add insult to injury, you put in money, yep. and Jim yep. and his family, your CFO, put in two hundred thousand right. dollars. You right. put Today's in you put in about two. Didn't you put in about two million?
1: Yeah. Yeah, brought in
0: that. Okay. That's what I thought. And then then, brought it in, whatever. Yeah. Okay. And then been there, done that app.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The hard part was (laughs) that The money that we brought in to be able to cover some of those needs, and I point out extensively in that, uh, which we brought in from the Legend Group from outside, which, while not enough to cover the $2 million deficit we had in cash, was enough to pay off, it was about $700,000. And it allowed us, if we had a plan, which we worked out between all of us, it allowed us to basically pay partial payments to everybody while we're raising the additional capital to, to keep the, the vendors at bay. And believe me, the vendor is close at hand. Uh, the uh, landlord was coming in and looking for the CEO. When he couldn't find him, he was screaming at me, uh, you know, where's the money? We're going to close the door. We're going to padlock it. And And so we're that close to being out. So we raised the $700,000. And in one day, the CEO spent it all. Even though we only had a plan to spend 147000 he spent the entire thing, and we didn't have enough for payroll at the end of the day, at the end of the week, right. and this right. is after raising so 700000
0: mis- Yeah, so just a, uh, just a tad bit of mismanagement and somebody who had their priorities not set straight, mm-hmm. you know, you got to, as you say, prioritize and compartmentalize and look at what your long-term goals are and, and what are your short-term goals and what, can you do and what can't you do so hap what is the status of artica today i went to the website i see a picture of these nice people two new people on the board it's still out there um do you see promise for these guys is it is it gonna is it gonna thrive are they ever gonna be able to pull it out
1: well, it's it's not unlike a lot of other companies that basically you have to strip down and change everything. They, one of the culture clashes we had in the company is whether it was going to be an R&D company or rather a full enterprise. They decided to uh, carry on by being an R&D company and search out grants from government which is one of the things that, that Dick Martin, the CEO, was good at getting, and to get these grants to keep going on and uh, funding uh, sizable, you know, seven-figure losses as they went through, while developing the basic fuel cell idea and the fuel that went along with it. The, there is a big need. In the world, for that product that 's what drew me in initially. There continues to be a need, whether it 's government for military or for consumer applications. If the company can continue to fund itself because it's it's you know about uh, one third the size of the people uh, that that we initially had when we were actually commercializing the project, then it's going to be great uh, but I continue to hold to the belief and I believe I mentioned it in the book, that basically a company which only has invention is really not innovation. Invention plus commercialization is really the innovation. And it seems to me that when the company can come out with a product and prove that it's a viable market, rather than just try to sell its patents, uh, that is when success will come its way. But they can continue to go on because the market need exists out there Every day, we're adding different devices that we all carry. Uh, those devices, almost all are, are requiring power. It could be our computers. It could be our phones. It could be ta- tablets that we have. It could be, if it's a military, everything from communication uh, devices to uh, night scopes to what what's going on. Huge, huge need out there. The need's no different. Uh, They are going ahead with the patents, but I believe, as I said, that you really have to have the combination of invention plus commercialization to give a real value to the company that's going to be uh, large.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. And for my listeners, um, if you've been following here this story, it's called Almost. uh, It's about Artica, a company in the Silicon Valley that Hap was on the board and the marketing director for. Uh, The book is called Almost. Uh, It's 12 Electric Months Chasing a Silicon Valley Dream. Um, Hap Klopp and Brian Tarsi is the uh, co-author of this book as well. Fascinating book uh, for any entrepreneur who is basically considering a startup. uh, I'd say recommended reading. Uh, There's a lot to be learned from this book pop it's been a pleasure having you on inside personal growth and spending some time with my listeners sharing some of your wisdom about what you learned uh while you were working at Article. I'd love to invite you back on to uh do another interview uh about your book The North Face the leadership book and Great. I'd love to do that with you if you're if you're up for that
1: I would be totally up for it and and I hope people enjoy uh, almost it's it's a uh, cautionary tale uh, I like to believe it is optimistic because that's the way it happens in Silicon Valley. You keep trying, and keep trying. It's like learning to walk when you're a, a child. You didn't always make it the first time, but just kept bouncing up until you made it work. And that's what entrepreneurism is all about.
0: Well, when we write the blog, we'll put links in to the favorite places where people can go. We'll actually put a link to Artica so you can see what they're actually doing, get an idea Um, We'll put a link to any of uh, Hap's uh, social media pages as well. So Hap, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for taking the time, and I appreciate it so much.
1: Thank you, Greg. Great to talk with you. I hope the uh, listeners learn from it.